0: This video was made possible thanks to your support on Patreon. Subscribe on Patreon for early access to videos and additional content. In crime mysteries, there are many things used to close a case, physical evidence, clues, and witness testimony to name a few. Clues in particular are one of the most important things for detectives who are attempting to make a break in a cold case. But what happens when a single clue leads to more questions than answers? In today's episode, we'll be exploring three unsolved cases with strange clues. Ethel Hughes. Born on April 1st of 1885 to Daniel and Georgiana Smith in Franklin, Indiana, Ethel Emma Hughes had grown up as the youngest of four siblings, having one brother and two sisters. She lived an ordinary life, marrying Benjamin Hughes in 1902. The couple were together for 30 years and had five children together. Following Benjamin's death in 1932, Ethel did not remarry, living alone in a three-roomed house in Elwood, Indiana, a city of which she was a long time resident. On August 8th of 1964, 79-year-old Ethel alerted the police when she began to receive a series of disturbing phone calls. Officers responded to her request for help and headed over to her home at 704 South 24th Street, where she explained that she was being harassed by an anonymous caller who'd phoned her on numerous occasions to say obscene things. The officers filed a report, and just days later, Ethel called them again. This time, the unknown caller was threatening her life. Over the next few days, Ethel made several calls to report strange noises coming from within her home late at night. Although officers attended the scene each time, they never found anything unusual. From here, it becomes unclear what occurred exactly over the next few weeks and whether or not Ethel continued to contact the police. What we do know is that on September 26th, Ethel's daughter, Eleanor, called her repeatedly throughout the day, but received no answer. Worried about her elderly mother, She decided to drive over and see her shortly before midnight. Eleanor knocked on the door, but got no response. She tried the door handle, but it was locked. So using her spare key, she let herself inside. What she found at the back of the house in Ethel's bedroom horrified her. There on the bed covered in blood was the body of Ethel Hughes. Ethel's end had been violent. She was face up on the bed with a pillow over her face and she'd been beaten around the head, face, chest, and torso with a large laceration on her forehead. Both a flashlight and a ball-peen hammer were recovered from the scene, both of which were suspected of being used in the assault. Authorities later specified that she was not sexually assaulted. The 79-year-old's cause of death was established as a massive hemorrhage, which was the result of her liver rupturing during the attack. Her death certificate placed her death somewhere between 9.30 on the evening of September 25th and 9.30 on the morning of September 26th. She was last heard from on the evening of September 25th when she called Eleanor at around 9 p.m. It was noted that nothing seemed out of the ordinary during this chat. About half an hour later, Ethel called a friend and the pair spoke about the unidentified caller who had been harassing her. She claimed that she now knew his identity and said, now that I know who it is, I'm not as afraid as I was. However, Ethel did not reveal the person's name. Authorities quickly ruled out robbery as a motive as nothing was taken from the scene. However, they would not admit one way or another whether or not there were signs of a struggle inside the home, although they said that the receiver on Ethel's phone had been ripped from its cord and there was no sign of forced entry. This led investigators to theorize that she'd let someone in to use her phone and that it was likely someone she knew. They added that they believed the perpetrator was local. Fingerprint testing and examination of items in the home turned up no new leads in the case. Ethel had no known enemies. As well as being a widow and a mother, the 79-year-old was also an active member of her church and had been a member of the Freemason organization called the Order of the Eastern Star for over 50 years. There are several different theories in Ethel's case. Some online sleuths have speculated that someone was living in her home with her or perhaps in her walls without her knowledge. Others have suggested the caller was perhaps a member of her church or family, which led her to feel less afraid. It's also been speculated that she was being harassed by a peeping Tom or that the horrific crime was carried out by multiple people. Perhaps the caller and the attacker were two different individuals. Another theory proposed by amateur sleuths is that maybe Ethel's harasser was someone who knew she left a window unlocked or had possession of a key to her house somehow. Once again, suggesting it could have been a family member. However, all of these are just theories. Ethel's case continues to go unsolved. No charges have ever been brought and it does not appear that any strong suspects were ever located. Her mysterious caller has never been found, and what they wanted with her, why they harassed her is still unknown. Ethel was buried in Elwood City Cemetery alongside her husband and her deceased daughter, Mary, who passed away in 1937. James Coe, born August 14th of 1930, James Irvin Coe grew up in Burksville, Kentucky, where he was part of the Coe Ridge Colony, a community founded by Ezekiel and Patsy Ann Coe in 1866, following the abolition of slavery in the United States. Following James's transition into young adulthood, however, he married Roberta Allen, and the couple moved to Indianapolis, Indiana. Upon settling into their new community, Roberta and James had six children together, In 1957, their eldest was seven years old while their youngest, just 10 months. At this time, James, now 26, worked part-time as a preacher and part-time as a porter at the Weir Cook Municipal Airport, now known as the Indianapolis International Airport. Every morning, the young man made the 14-mile trip by bicycle through all sorts of weather to reach the airport. Despite having two jobs, he could not afford a car. Colleagues noted that he was very rarely late and never missed a day of work. On April 8th of 1957, at 5.15 a.m., James began his normal journey to work, departing from North Keystone Avenue. He made it four blocks from home when a truck appeared behind him and the driver increased their speed. Alarmed, James attempted to move out of the way to let the truck driver past, but the vehicle moved with him and struck the father of six, crushing James's skull and sending his body crashing to the curb. This incident was witnessed by a 16-year-old paper girl who was out delivering the Indianapolis Star just 300 feet from the scene. She told authorities that it looked as if the driver had purposefully hit the 26 year old and explained that this truck was an apple green van style truck. After hitting James, the driver reportedly pulled over a short distance from the scene and exited their vehicle. They approached the father of six before picking something up, tossing it into the back of their truck and fleeing. However, the paper girl was unable to tell exactly what had been picked up and she could not identify the perpetrator either. While examining the scene, Investigators located James's wallet, which contained the photos of six different teenage girls, three of which had love notes scribbled on the back. One read, with love to Irvin, I'm looking forward to that date Saturday night. However, the note was unsigned. It was never publicly disclosed what the other notes said. Finding this rather unusual, the police then spoke with the 26-year-old's wife, Roberta, who explained that she had found the photos a few months prior, but when she asked James about them, he refused to tell her where he'd gotten the images or why he had them or who the girls were. Less than one week after her husband's death, Roberta began receiving calls threatening her life and the life of one of her friends. Although the caller was identified as a man, his name was never discovered. The exact words spoken by the caller have never been revealed, with newspaper articles from 1957 stating only that the anonymous man was threatening. Despite the somewhat distinct nature of the van which collided with James and his bike, the vehicle has never been found. Likewise, the identities of the girls in the photographs have never been discovered in the days following the murder. Police received about 150 telephone reports in relation to James's case, but sadly, none of them panned out. According to some reports, there were several possible suspects identified. One of these suspects was a local man who was scheduled to take a polygraph test in the days following the incident, but he was never arrested and his name has never been made public. There are several different theories in James's case. Some online sleuths have speculated that the 26-year-old was attacked by the father of one of the girls whose photo was found in his wallet. This would suggest that the part-time preacher was having some kind of inappropriate relationship with the girls. Others have speculated that perhaps the culprit was a jealous lover of one of the young women. Another prominent theory is that Roberta had a friend or family member murder James for humiliating her or perhaps because she feared for the safety of her children after finding the photographs. Armchair detectives have added that maybe the phone threats were made simply to throw off investigators. However, others have proposed the idea that maybe the images were of his high school girlfriends, while it's also been suggested that James was a victim of a hate crime and nothing more. This is all, of course, simply conjecture as we have no real evidence to point in any one direction it seems likely that we'll never know what happened to James. Very little evidence, if any, was left behind at the scene and the photos of the girls in his wallet were never made public. James was buried in the new Crown Cemetery and mausoleum in Indianapolis. Helen Tobolsky. On the morning of Saturday, March 22nd, 1975, 62-year-old Helen Tobalski arrived at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana, to start her shift as a custodian. Most cleaners started at 8 a.m., but Helen preferred to start at 7, as it meant she could earn some extra money by working over time. Her time card showed that she punched in bang on 7 a.m. as normal, and she grabbed her necessary cleaning supplies before heading to the Aerospace Engineering Building to begin her day. Two hours later at 9 a.m., an engineering professor by the name of Dr. Hugh Ackert entered the building. Heading from the offices to the machine shop, he found the body of Helen lying in the hallway in a pool of blood. He immediately called the authorities. Sadly, we know very little about Helen's life. She was born in New Carlisle, Indiana on May 22nd of 1912. She married her husband, John Tobolsky in 1933, and the couple had two children together, although one died just age two in 1941. John passed away suddenly 20 years later in 1962, which is when Helen began to work at the university. She never remarried and had no known enemies. By all accounts, she enjoyed her job and was well liked by the staff at the university. This fact made her murder all the more baffling. When law enforcement arrived at the scene of the crime, it was determined that Helen had been shot, specifically with a small caliber weapon from behind her left ear at close range. Looking around the classrooms, the police noted a strange message scribbled on a blackboard near to where the 62-year-old's body was found. It read 22175. 75 the day I died. The message has never been confirmed to be in Helen's handwriting, but investigators suspected that she was forced to write the message and got confused about the date while in a state of panic. Upon questioning staff and students alike, no one came forward to take responsibility for the message, although it is still possible that it's unrelated to the case. Nevertheless, authorities took the blackboard as evidence. Helen's body was located at the north end of the hallway while her mop buckets unused stood at the south end. The doors to the building had been locked on Friday evening, but it was noticed that the door near the 62-year-old's body had been forced open and a small window on it was broken, suggesting that someone broke the glass to unlock the door. This led investigators to believe that the culprit was already in the building when Helen arrived to start work. It's possible they were surprised. Perhaps they didn't expect anyone to start before 8 a.m. It has been suggested that Helen was killed by a panicked intruder, although this would not explain the odd message on the chalkboard. Although authorities theorized that the trespasser was attempting to burgle the department, it's unclear what exactly they were looking for, considering the building was full of mostly large equipment and heavy machinery that would be difficult, if not impossible, to steal. It was also noted by professors that no classified research was carried out or kept in the building either. Law enforcement also determined that Helen's purse was missing from her handbag, but it is unclear if it was purposefully stolen or if she simply didn't bring it to work with her. Theories in Helen's case are sadly limited. Some believe she was the victim of a botched robbery, while others believe it was some crime of opportunity regardless of whether the intruder was truly attempting to rob the department or not. It's been speculated that the blackboard message was left by the culprit, and they perhaps indicated that something traumatic or angering had happened to them on that specific date. In the same vein, amateur detectives have suggested the perpetrator was someone holding a grudge, possibly someone kicked out of the school, fired from their job there, or perhaps failed their class and blamed it on a professor. Helen's death was the first homicide committed on the campus. Despite this, her murder remains unsolved 46 years later. A $5,000 reward offered at the time brought in no suspects or charges. And the case is just as puzzling now as it was back in 1975. Helen was buried next to her husband at St. Joseph's Cemetery. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. You can also support us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month, which works out as less than 20 cents per video and really makes a huge difference to us. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.